I do remember one one time we were doing an outdoor show in and there were a couple of like truck beds. I think the, the stage was on. It was all mm -hmm. rather primitive then, facing one side of a stadium. And so there was seats. And the police continuously, with the Beatles and even with us and all the other acts, would underestimate the power of these girls, how crazy they would get. So they'd go, oh, we can handle anything, you know. And what happened, all the girls came running down onto the grass of the baseball pitch or whatever you call it. And and they were running across to where we were on the stage. And suddenly cops were telling us, leave, leave, run, go, you know, go and get back in the cars. This is out of control. So we were running, jumped off the, and as I jumped off the truck bed that was the stage onto the grass, my glasses fell, fell off, which had become somewhat, sort of iconic they were my buddy holly glasses you know the right, right. they fell off on the ground i picked them up and ran over and eventually got in the car i looked back and this girl had caught up to where my glasses had landed on the grass <laughs> and was pulling the grass up and eating it what this is tokyo tonight Tonight. Hi, how are you, Hi, sir? Welcome. Very good, thank you. What a, what a great little intro piece that that is. I, I, very <laughs> cool. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, we yeah we started this during the pandemic, and I just I just thought of grabbing a collection of everything I could that was happening at the time. Yeah, it's like a collage of ridiculous stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm like everyone's yeah. going through some kind of dystopia, so we're just gonna mash yeah. it all together. Yeah. How are you doing, man? How are you holding up? Very good, thanks. All awesome. Fine. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. I'm so glad that you're actually out and you're touring and stuff because uh, I'm you're going to be at the Count Basie on the 17th. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a very limited amount of it. I mean, to be honest, things that 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 we didn't have to do. I, mm -hmm. I at this point, I still think the safest thing is to stay home. So um, I agree. So, but yeah, there are some commitments we'd already made in areas that appear to be safe and sound and not full of idiots so um yeah. <laughs> we feel the we, same exact, exact, uh, exact so, thing. So we're doing those but that's good but some things we've, we've postponed and put off i mean there's a lot of things that you know i i was talking to uh elvis costello the other day you know and he was doing that thing in new york and mm -hmm. I, we and i were both kind of going is this really a sensible thing to do and in the end of course <laughs> in the end he was one of the people that was scheduled after the downpour right and storm and all that so he he, he, I haven't spoken to him since, but he didn't get on the show at all. So he's, he <laughs> yeah. was there in New York, ready uh, for action. And I think it was in the middle of Barry Manilow that the whole thing ground to a halt. Yeah, it did, which wow. I felt bad for Barry Manilow because it was like, you know, he's. I felt bad for everybody. They all came out to do it. I'm sure everybody was trepidatious. Exactly. No, everyone decided, yeah, let's do it. But I mean, in the end, it was intended to celebrate, you know, we're all back and everything's fine. And unfortunately we're not, and it isn't. But, no, I know. I know. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was a really, but other than that, thing to watch. you know, it was yeah. a great idea. And Clive Davis is, <laughs> is brilliant and someone I very much admire and a great friend. So, you know, I wouldn't have done anything for him, but I have to admit that by the time this gig rolled around, it was like, yeah, hmm, I don't know. You know, 
Uh, what do you think? Of, what do you think of like the? Because I know that um, like Eric Clapton's caught some heat recently, and and I think Van Morrison because they don't apparently believe in any of this. But I read an interview the other day that they were talking about Eric Clapton saying that uh, like he's he's lost about seventy five percent of his friends. They won't talk to him. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I would talk to him. I still regard him as a friend. I haven't yeah. seen him lately. He's not a close friend, but but um, uh, yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised and disappointed by some of the things he has said. Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally weird, man. Everybody and Morrison, I kind of expected. If Anne Morrison, <laughs> I hardly know at all. And apparently, that's a that's a good position to stay in. But, but, um, yeah, exactly. But, but Eric's a totally cool guy, and I, I was puzzled. Yeah, I was shocked by that too. I think yeah. I, I love Eric Clapton, so it was kind of weird yeah. uh, to hear all that kind of stuff. And yeah. maybe he'll shake out of it. Who knows? Um, but that's awesome that you are doing some of the gigs and able to come out. Yeah, no, we're looking forward. Stuff. The gigs we are, and as I say, we're playing an area of the country with this little little mm -hmm. leg that, that that seems to be, as I say, a very a very safe and sensible right. area. And you were touring with another good friend of yours, Jeremy Clyde, uh, and now he can't come with you on some of these gigs. Yes, I, I you know my understanding is that it's very hard for someone from overseas, even from a an alleged ally like Great Britain, to to actually mm -hmm. come into America. Now, it's not that that officially not letting anyone in but the whole process has become so slow and complicated yeah but that yeah, coming in on anything other than a u.s passport is is very tricky and to come in in time for a, an immediate gig is impossible how did you guys wind up deciding to tour together well to be honest it seemed kind of obvious i mean it, it's like <laughs> you know um because well look at it this way first of all it's very there were only two duos in the whole british invasion mm-hmm if you think about it, yep. and the similarities between the two of us were ridiculous. Right. In both cases, we were from London. We weren't from Liverpool or any you know working class northern area. All from London. In each case, there was the tall, handsome one who sang the low part. The short, nerdy one wearing glasses sang the high part. <laughs> that 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 in, that describes both duos. Right. And even odder in a way was that the lead singer in both bands had their name second. Right. <laughs> so it's really right. Weird. So anyway, Gordon sadly died, of course. And then yes. when when Chad died, re retired and subsequently died, um, mm -hmm. the it was kind of well, you know, we looked at each other and went, well, you know, it's yeah. kind of obvious. Uh, because that way we get to do a show where you know he gets to sing Well Without Love and Nobody I Know and I Go to Pieces, and I get to sing Yesterday's Gone and Willow Weep for Me and and all the you know, um all the Chad and Jeremy hits. So it seemed kind of irresistible. Plus, we're, we're both we're both actors as well as musicians. As Jeremy, mm -hmm. even more so than me, I was a child actor mostly, and right. but we both enjoy being on stage, and we 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 try to inject a little of what we fondly consider witty repartee in the in the into the show. So, you know, it it honestly seemed like the logical thing to do to us. So, you know, we both do other stuff as well, but mm. we do go out together, and it's fun. That's awesome. That that you can't beat that kind of friendship and uh, and compatibility either. Yeah. What, you were talking about the British invasion. You'd mentioned it. Um, did you guys at the time? Because obviously it started with the Beatles, you know, yeah. and then everybody kind of caught that wave out, right? Yeah. Oh, I I always say to people, you know, it really was like ninety percent the Beatles and the ten percent all the rest was put together, which is not to belittle the Rolling Stones, who are a very important band and whom right. I love dearly. But there's no question the people who kicked the door down and let us all creep in after them was the Beatles. Right. For sure. And yes, England was full of great bands, all copying American music, you know, which was the irony right. of the whole thing that, yeah. you know, people forget to this day that until the Beatles started writing songs, which they turned out to do rather well, but mm -hmm. uh, they never sang an English song, I don't think, at all. Right. 
Everything was American. And the whole operation was based on, on, on our admiration for American bands and American music. In our case, particularly as a duo, let us not fail to pay tribute to Don Everly, who, who died yesterday, I guess. Yeah. And because, of course, the, you know, um, the Rolling Stones may have wanted to be, you know, Jimmy Reed, whoever they wanted to be. Yeah. But there's no question we wanted to be the Everly Brothers. Right. And that was, was that something that you guys were like aware of as you were all coming over that there was like, this is the goal. This is what we need to do. We need to follow the Beatles. And were you all kind of like, no, uh, we, no, it wasn't the goal, but, it, but we realized that suddenly we could, I mean, because uh -huh. the other thing people forget is that before that there were no British hit records in America. Wow. I mean, virtually none. You look at the years preceding the Beatles, Lonnie Donegan had a mm -hmm. hit with Rock Island Line. Right. Only to follow it with the much more ghastly um, does does your chewing gum lose its flavor on right. the bed most overnight, <laughs> which, which was a bigger hit than Rock Island Line, which is a lead belly song, and mm -hmm. and uh, Aka Bilk. Anyone remember Aka Bilk? No, I don't think I know that. It was an instrumental called Stranger on the Shore, and it was number one. Oh, I know. Yeah, wow. yeah. I British. know that Stranger on the Shore. Yeah, yeah, that was him, and oh, that wow. was that was a British hit. But generally. There were hits in England that were mostly British acts covering American songs. But um, the idea of having a hit in America was wholly impossible. I mean, wow. it was like, you know, it'd be like suddenly a, you know, an Afghanistan act having a, having a number one record in America. It, would, you know, it, <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. And, and suddenly the Beatles made it happen. Wow. That's incredible. I didn't realize it was that kind of a thing. Um, were you all friendly with each other at the time or did you kind of get here and then, you know, realize it's become like a thing and you, you mean with the other British bands? Yeah. Uh, well, yes. I mean, well, I, you know, I was friendly with the Beatles that, right. that in particular, but, mm -hmm. but I think once you had a record deal and you started doing some of the TV shows that we all did the same shows, yes. promotional shows that everyone did. Uh, and eventually the same applied to America, you know, where you'd come and do Shindig and Hullabaloo and you'd meet other bands. But in England, yeah, you'd do Top of the Pops and Thank You Lucky Stars and all that. And you'd meet the other bands. Some of them already knew each other, like the the, the Liverpool bands knew each other mm -hmm. to a considerable extent. The Manchester bands knew each other to a considerable extent from from working the same circuit. We didn't really know most of those people. We were very London-based and there wasn't, Mm. There was a lot less bands in London, I suppose, except the Stones. But and I didn't, you know, I was a big Rolling Stones fan. I used to go and see yeah. them once a week when they were doing a residency in a blues club. But but uh, I didn't know them until much later on. So was it almost like in reverse, where like you guys uh, started out there, had to come out here, get really big, and then you could kind of tour like wherever no, you wanted? No, no, uh, no. We were beginning. I mean, the record. We were lucky. We, you know, our very first record went to number one in the UK. Mm -hmm. So. So we were stars in the UK right away. When did you start? Like your, you forged your friendship with the Beatles, and I know you went on tour with them in like '66. We, um, we only toured with them briefly. We did a, like a one-week tour of Germany or something. That's Germany. We actually toured with them. Yeah, was that what did that come about <gasps> naturally? Like you were already friends with them beforehand, and then you guys decided. Yeah, to go we were on tour. friends. We were friends beforehand. Yes. Yes. How did you How did you wind up hooking up with those uh, with the Beatles? Well, that's a, a slightly more complicated story, which you may or may not know, but. Um, you know, my my sister ended up being friends with Paul McCartney for a, for a while. She right. they, went, they went out together for a couple of years, and Paul 
for several years actually and paul ended up moving into our house into the guest room for lived with us for two years so that's wow. how i got to know and i met the rest of the beatles through him and and through that way and then you guys forged yeah. like a friendship that's cool what was it like being on tour with them was it a, it was a kind of at the height of that whole thing right did you feel any yeah. kind of like uh was it all just fun or were you like there's a lot of pressure <laughs> oh, it was fun. I mean, it was, you know, getting to watch them on stage every night was exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, being on stage and singing and looking over in the wings and seeing one of them watching was intimidating. But, <laughs> but uh, it was all fun. We, right. we were in Germany. We traveled on this amazing private train that had been built for heads of state. And wow. uh, each of the Beatles had a private bedroom on the train. It was it was all very exciting. Yeah, people and of course, stuff. nobody could hear much. You got to remember technologically how primitive it was then. You know, monitors right. had been invented. Yeah. PA's you used whatever was at the gig. You know, right. nobody traveled with a proper PA system. So, so it was a good thing they were all screaming, and the shows were only about half an hour long because <laughs> because you know you couldn't hear a note, and you and and there was just no provision for anyone doing so. Was that something that bothered you guys the same way it yeah. bothered them? Yeah, it was. Yes, it was, very much yeah. so. Um, we were aware that it'd be nice if you could go to a concert and actually hear the music, you know. Um, wow. When in classical music, you could because because everyone was shut up and and because but the point about an orchestra is that you don't need a PA, you you know. It's, yeah. it, it's loud enough to hear in a normal concert hall anyway. But the minute you start to talk stadiums and screaming girls and rock and roll, mm -hmm. it became a completely inaudible mixture. Was this something that you always kind of going back a little bit was like music, something you always wanted to uh, do, pursue, like when you were younger? Like, what was that? Well, my mother was a professional musician. Um, wow. She was an oboe but, player. She was an oboe professor at the Royal Academy of Music in London. So I grew up in a very classical background. But but yes, music was. And my father was a big music fan and amateur pianist and a Gilbert Sullivan a, a obsessed person. And and. So on. So music was always part of my life. And then, you know, when I discovered rock and roll and folk music and everything, I, I was a big jazz fan too, mm. but I never presumed to think that I could ever play that stuff because you have to actually practice for hours and stuff. Like right. <laughs> Did you ever try? What? Did you ever like try jazz? to do it? Yeah. Well, I was, in a, I was in a Dixieland jazz band playing bass oh, for wow. a little while. Um, Playing bass very badly, but you know <laughs> that was what we used to call trad jazz. You know, traditional Dixieland jazz, which mm -hmm. is pretty easy. Right. But the music I loved was bebop. You know, and that's the most complicated music in the world. Oh, that's fascinating. That's uh, how old were you when you did the Dixieland? Uh, were you young? Like uh, seventeen, sixteen? I suppose. Wow. Um, yeah. Interestingly, the, the band the band leader was a guy called Adrian Lyne, who you may or might not know is a yeah, yeah. successful film director. Yes. Oh my he, God. That's he played crazy. he played trumpet and led the band. Oh my wow. goodness, that's incredible. Did you guys wind up keeping in touch as you as you went on your yes. separate ways? Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, we have we did and we have. Although I haven't seen him for a couple of years, but I should wow. I should email him after for, after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad Let's I can help with that. Tell him I see, see what he's up to. <laughs> What um so what was your writing process like when you were younger and getting getting into the like you know having to having to go on tour and stuff like that too was it the music first was the lyrics first what was well, your we, process well you know we didn't write our own hits unfortunately we wrote songs but right. we never succeeded in writing a hit but yeah we we Gordon and I wrote together and mm -hmm. uh, it we wrote music and lyrics pretty much at the same time I think it was one of those, oh wow you know um it it would vary in other words sometimes someone would have a lyrical line as a suggestion. Mm -hmm. But you know the lyrics were pretty basic and cheesy in that era. 
you know. <laughs> and it, it was a gradual process by which people started to write more literate lyrics. But, you know, there was an awful lot of I love you, baby, you know, and yeah. moon, moon and June. And well, I'm sure that them. helped uh, with dating and the girls and stuff like that back in the day. Oh, it did. That's one of the reasons we took up. <laughs> yeah. We took up guitar in the first place. Probably me more so than Gordon, only because Gordon was, you know, a, a handsome lady killer type guy. Mm -hmm extremely self-confident and all that right if you're, if you're the slightly shorter you know relying on trying to be charm charming and funny rather than looking like elvis um i get it i think we're the same I height didn't. so i totally get it um yeah <laughs> and uh so yeah you, you having being able to play the guitar a bit helped so when did you learn to play the guitar uh i gordon you know I, i'd learned a few chords gordon used some more chords and we just sort of figured it out gradually. I'm, I'm still only basic, you know, folk level uh, mm -hmm. rhythm guitar player, but I learned enough chords to, to play all the songs I wanted to play. I always found that kind of interesting because it feels like all my heroes too, but like any kind of, um, you know, uh, like, you know, rock musicians or whatever, didn't have any formal training or didn't, they don't know how to, you know, read or write music. Some but Many don't, yeah. Uh, we all learn guitar. There's, there's a guy called Bert Whedon. Mm -hmm. who is a, a little little recognized figure in British rock and roll because he had a guitar teaching book and method oh, that wow. almost everybody learned from. Um, I know McCartney did. I know I did. I, I, I know uh, Hank Marvin, who you may or may not know about, who's a big British guitar hero. He was the lead guitar player of The Shadows, not well known in America. We all tried to play. But he learned from Burt Whedon. It was How to Play in a Day or something, I think was the name of the book, or something like that. Oh, I've got it. I've got it somewhere, um, and we a lot of us learned from that book and from that uh, later on from a video that he made. Oh, that's incredible. Did you ever? Did you ever get to play with the shadows? No, I met I met them, but I didn't get to play with them. No. You know, uh, they were Cliff, they were Cliff Richards' backup band, and Cliff Richard was, you know, a huge star in the UK and still is. Oh, that's incredible. He, he was like Howard Elvis. Wow. Um, yeah, do you, are you? comfortable meeting you i mean at this point you play with the beatles and stuff like that but when you were younger and you were starting out too was there anybody that ever i've never played you? i've never played with the beatles i mean we've, well you we've, went on tour with them yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like yeah yeah like you were with just, them or just whatever. A, i'm not claim i'm not over claiming yeah <laughs> i would love to <laughs> i will <laughs> over claim for Some, you right, exactly oh, i played with them a lot no somebody uh, said to me all that time paul was living in, in in next door to you in in the same house you know you never wrote any songs together i went no, I wish. Uh, I was gonna. That's what I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask if uh, uh, World no, Without Love no. you guys collaborated at all on it. If you got to throw in some lines or something. No, he, I think he had an alternate collaborator who was a little better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not familiar with him. Can you just yeah, exactly? Um, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, was there anybody that you were ever intimidated meeting like for the first time or like performing like? Oh, well, yes, I think all of them. Um, I mean, you know, I've I've, I've had the pleasure of producing a lot of people who mm -hmm. I was intimidated by. I mean, Linda Ronstadt, um, um, I mean, James Taylor, uh, the list, yeah. I, I was looking at the list and it goes, it just goes on and on. Bonnie Raitt, Cher, 10,000 Maniacs, Diana Ross, Neil Diamond. Now you see, well, there you go. Cher and, Cher and Diana could each be a little bit intimidating. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Diana, you know, you hear all those stories about, you know, call me Miss Ross or whatever. And I, right. so, and I knew her a bit socially. We, we hung out together before, but mm -hmm. not, not, at any length so the very first day in the studio you do kind of go this is scary and right. but she's wonderful and she was charming and uh helpful and you know she's the kind of person same as Cher, where you wouldn't want to not have done your homework 
right. you wouldn't want to yeah. not be ready, you know. But if you're ready and you know what you're doing, and I remember, I mean, someone like Diana, I mean, I've had the luxury, this is a bit of a digression, but I've had the luxury obviously of producing a number of singers, for some reason, mostly girl singers, mm -hmm. um, who are unique, you know. Uh, yeah. the, the thing they have in common is that, that in about four bars or less, you know exactly who's singing. When you have Cher singing or Linda singing, or Natalie Merchant singing, mm -hmm. or Diana singing. You know, and I remember doing the first session with Diana, you know, I'd worked on the track and had the arrangement done and all that stuff. And, and but she, when she, I can't remember what the song it was, but um, she goes out to the mic and sings, you know, and you kind of go, holy shit, she sounds exactly <laughs> like Diana. <laughs> And and you think back to all your Supremes records, you know, and your baby love, I stop in the name of love. And wow, yes, she sounds, you know, boy, it really sounds like her. It's amazing. And right. of course, it's not amazing at all. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's to be expected, but it's intimidating nonetheless. That's incredible. That's incredible. And you also uh one of James Taylor's biggest albums, Sweet Baby James, you produced. Yeah, I produced most of those records. Um, I did the bunch of Warner Brothers, and then he did a couple without me, and then I came back and did JT, the first album on CBS, which which was a big success. That's incredible. What was it like? And you produced uh, and won a Grammy for Robin Williams' album in two thousand two. I did. Yes. What made you want to do a comedy album? Robin's it was it was a dear friend, um, and uh, we'd hung out together a lot. And we started talking about the fact he wanted to make a a live record and essentially we were talking about how to make because it was an interesting period of time and this again is a bit of a digression comedy mm -hmm. records went through a change because if you remember comedy records used to be huge yes bill cosby bob newhart yeah millions, Steve Martin. Yeah. millions of records were sold you know um mm -hmm. and but and they were usually like the bill cosby ones just live gigs yeah so what happened of course is once dvds came in mm -hmm. it was like why would I want, you know, it's like the company's offering you a choice. You can have one hour of comedy mm -hmm. without pictures you yeah. know, for $15, whatever it was. Or right. if you like, we can give you two hours with pictures. Right. For <laughs> it's like, well, it makes no sense logically. I mean, we right. can be explained, but it's insane. That, oh, you oh, you want pictures as well? Or oh, then you can have it twice as long. <laughs> but so, so in other words, that's why comedy albums stopped selling. Is because people would buy the DVD. So right. we were talking about this tour Robin was going to do, and there was going to be a DVD shot of the New York show, which was the end of the tour. Mm. And so I started talking about how we could make it different. We could record every night and choose all the best bits right. and change things around a bit, put things together. And also Robin would do each night. Uh, the first 10 minutes of the show would be about the city we were in. Mm -hmm. The minute we got off the plane, He'd be asking, you know, the limo driver and the baggage guy and the, you know, what's going on in town? What's the, what's the mayor up to? What's the sports team action? Right. Blah, blah, blah. And by the time we got to the show, he'd have written in his head an entire monologue about the, the town. So we recorded all those and so on. So anyway, oh. as we were talking about how can we make this different than the DVD? How can we make this interesting and better in some respects than the DVD, given the fact that we don't have you being funny mm -hmm. pictures and by the time we i started explaining all this to, he said you should you know he asked me if i would produce the record which essentially meant recording every night making notes as to which were the really cool versions of which bits which new bits because he freewheels a lot as you yeah know, which new bits were great each night 
and and putting it all together because he I don't think he'd have the patience to put to do the editing part right he'd, he'd no. be long gone on something else <laughs> so, yeah um so that's what and so I and he said he said do you want to produce the record and he and his 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 wife at the time Marsha Williams who were great mm -hmm. friends and Marsha was involved as well who's brilliant at it so uh, I said yes and that's how we ended up getting a Grammy for comedy album of the year not one I ever expected I have to admit. Yeah, it's that's incredible. I, I'm a huge, huge Robin Williams fan. One of my first albums was uh, his uh, 86 special live at the Met. Right. And really. this I got when I knew he was coming out with another city, I got it immediately Ooh. and it blew me away because exactly that you guys had put together such a unique package. And I I just remember crying, laughing at each each city he went to each different riff that you guys collaborated on and put that's together. Right. It's, it's just a yeah. beautiful album. Yeah, thank and you. I, very I much. haven't thank heard you. one quite as unique and quite like that since. It's it's thank really you. Incredible. Yeah, no, actually, it was nice that we got the Grammy because I felt we kind of deserved it. Yeah. Even though I bet some of the people who voted for it were thinking about the TV special. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. It, I, it's it. funny because take I it actually, anyway it comes. Yeah, I actually like it better than the TV special. And I remember listening to the album going, I actually wished I could see, you know, like what was on this album actually on TV. So it was yeah. crazy. Yeah, well, you're a man of impeccable taste. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to end the interview there. Uh, no, <laughs> um, that, yeah, that is, was it, did you find that more difficult to kind of edit and go through that kind of process because of the, the kind of material and what you had to be selective about than music? Or do you think the music is more difficult? Oh, that's a hard one. That's an interesting one. Well, you never really get presented. I've never done a live album where I had three weeks of shows to choose from other right. than this one. So, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's probably harder than music because when I was making choices for a live music album or a, or a music video, you can make, you know, oh, this was a better performance. This was more in tune or whatever. This was a better tempo or whatever it is. But with Robin, you keep, you kept having to scribble that. Oh, he's not, this is where he goes on the crazy bit about whatever. Right. You know, so because the actual it's a, it would be like doing a music show, but every night they were doing different songs, you know, so or, or right. different suddenly like one song would last twice as long one night or something, you know, stuff that doesn't happen with music does happen with comedy. That's incredible. That's that's a so great. I, I would say that was harder. Uh, would you on we you, you were on the road with him for a little yeah, bit? Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. How yeah. what was that experience like? Because I. I, I guess just imagine what that had to be like. It was fantastic. I mean, as I say, Robin and I had become very good friends. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we'd hang out, we hang out together. We hung out together a lot, you know, up until the end. I yeah. saw him about three weeks before he left us. Wow. wow. That's that's incredible. That, that was one of those things. I mean, I, I can't, you know, knowing him personally, obviously uh, is on a different level. Yeah. But I, I couldn't imagine uh, somebody I didn't know personally or ever actually meet. I would have, I would have, you know, uh, done anything to admit, met him at the time. Yeah, he was, he, he was, up. but it affected know, he, everybody so much. And he was brilliant. I mean, as you probably know, he, he was intellectually extraordinary. Yeah. Very well read and you know, so on. Yeah. That's incredible. What led you into, cause you have another, you have another album coming out with Kate Taylor. That's the new album, right? Yes. Yeah, just out uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah. yeah well, we, we did an album, you know, when I, when I first met James, which is a whole other story. Um, <laughs> You know, when I signed them to to Apple Records and mm -hmm. all that, that meant I met the whole family, obviously. Right. And I loved them all. They all sing and play, as you may know. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, you know, uh, all the brothers sang and played brilliantly. Both parents are musical and so on. And I particularly admired the singing of his sister Kate. And mm -hmm. and uh, having heard her sing, I 
told she should make a record. I yeah. took her to uh, Ahmed Ertian, who's the, the head of Atlantic Records at the time, and and he loved her too. So we signed her to Atlantic, and I made a record. And it was actually, yeah. and then what happened was our, the record came out, did quite well. Uh, we didn't have a hit single, but it sold quite a lot. And mm -hmm. and then as we were out promoting it and everything, Kate was on the road, she decided she didn't like show business after all, that the rock and roll world was not for her, and she quit and wow. went to went to live in a teepee on somebody's land on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, wow. Wow. For a couple of years. And she did creep gradually back into singing because she, she sings so naturally. But um Somebody, you know, she eventually did go back out on the road years later, but somebody pointed out to me that it was now the 50th anniversary of that album we'd done all those years ago. So we put together a song that did another album on that anniversary using some of the same musicians, people like Danny Korchmar and Leland Sklar and Russ Kunkel, you know, legendary musicians right. who had played on that very first record as well. That's, that's, uh, that's <clears throat> Um. What led you kind of into producing in the first? I mean, like, because you were you were on the road. What moment did you go? I think I want to be a producer. I think this is what I'm really good at. Uh, I I wanted I I thought that the first time I was ever in a recording studio, when Peter and Gordon made their first single, mm -hmm. I was enthralled by the process, the technology, the music, the fact you could hire musicians much better than yourself and tell them what to play. I right. thought that was that was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to practice after all. And uh, <laughs> so uh, becoming a producer was a conscious decision on my part. I worked towards getting the right to produce records. And it's worth pointing out, of course, again, a huge difference between then and now, because now anyone can prove their worth as a producer by producing. You sit right. down with your laptop and you go, look at this groove and this beat and this song and this sound and this singing. Um, here's what i want to do right me, you know and give me a project but then without a studio and musicians and a project and somebody to pay for it you had no way other than just talking yourself up to, to convince people you wow. should be a record producer you know because there was no you know as i say people forget that there was no connection between computers and music whatsoever yeah, that's why, that's why there could be two separate companies called Apple, <laughs> because they were, yeah, because they were in completely separate worlds. No one imagined, right, that, that a computer would be where not only where you stored music, where you made music and everything else. So um, that's that's otherwise those companies would have never been al allowed to register their separate existence. Do you? Uh, I mean, do you think about the di like the differences much between then and now? And do you do you feel like? Uh, maybe I don't want to say one was better than the other because it's always, you know, subjective in a sense, but like just the, the industry in general, how do you feel about the change it's, it's come through? It's, that's a complicated question. I can, I can give you a very long answer, but technologically in the studio, I've, I love all the changes. I mean, it doesn't mean that you give up any of the, any of the value of the older ways of doing things, but it means right. that now we can do things we dreamt of back then. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, there's all kinds of times. So I wish we could fix that. You know, <laughs> only we could use that take, but just fix that one note. Things that you know you we couldn't do, right? Or yeah. couldn't do easily. I was um, I was fascinated. Now by you that. can do so much. You know, just um, it's I, I love it. It's yeah. really. But yes, the people sometimes take advantage of the new technology to not bother to get mm -hmm. things right. Yeah. Um, yes, they do, and that's a mistake. 
Uh, yeah, I was fascinated by the uh, mm. the Rick. Ru I don't know if you saw the Rick Rubin documentary. I haven't yet. I keep meaning to, and everyone keeps asking me. The cool, Maybe it's the easier that I can go. No, I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you and can I, watch it and not I, tell anybody. I like Paul and I like Rick, and I I should see it. Yeah, it, well, you know, the coolest thing about it was that I had never seen anything like it. I just it was cool mm -hmm. to see them uh, working with the soundboard. Yeah, I've never I'd never course, seen that before, and that relates to the fact that it was all on four track and things like that. Right, right, yeah, yeah. and it was it was incredible to see two people kind of because I you know the process that people go through is the the most interesting thing too because love the music, love the songs and stuff, and and seeing everybody live, but seeing how it's made is like it's 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 a whole other world. Yeah, and it's interesting now too. I mean, you watch the one, the the Billie Eilish little documentary. This, yeah, my favorite bit is her and Phineas talking about how they did stuff, completely different technology, but the same process essentially. Yeah, yeah, it's all kind of a. It all goes through like a creative digestive feed, basically, yeah. and it comes yeah. out at the end when it's good. Yeah. Um, mm. Is there? Do you still enjoy like performing live at the moment, or is it kind of weird for like? Because I know we were talking a little bit about like you know, places being safe and stuff like that or whatever. But did you, did you find yourself going a little crazy during the lockdown and stuff when you couldn't get out there to do it, or Not did you really. find other means to do it? No, um, That's good. It was fine, you know, and and. I live in Malibu on the beach. You know, there are worse places to be. And, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, whatever else they can stop you doing, they can't stop you, you know, sitting on your deck, watching the waves and drinking a gin and tonic. So, yeah. it, you know, yeah. it's like, I can live with this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that's a very, that's, I feel like that's a real honest answer. Cause I feel like some people come on and they're like, Oh man, you know, it's been really rough. And I'm like, I've seen well, I've talked to friends in New York, you know, if you live in a New York. Oh, apartment, in New York, yeah. Well, you're scared to go in the elevator. You, yeah. you can't get in and out easily. Even if you do get out, you're walking down the street with a million other people. It's, it's you know, I can see it being yeah, New York a, city, a real city like New York or London. It could be quite restricting. But certainly where we are, I mean, if we didn't leave the house for a few days, you, as I say, you still, you're never trapped, really. Right. Yeah. No, I didn't feel, I, I mean, I got a lot of, uh, I never thought I'd be sitting at a desk, but I, I, um, I got a lot, <laughs> I missed, I missed the road a little bit, but you know, you adapted and you moved on, um, from that. Yeah, it doesn't mean I don't, I didn't look forward to, to working, but what right. was I continually going, Oh no, I'm trapped. No. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean the, the road's kind of interesting and I, and I, I'm going to come see you at Count Basie by the way. So I can't, oh, great. Uh, oh, yeah, good. Thank I'm, you. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be uh, awesome. Um, but, uh, is there any place in particular that you, that you like absolutely love performing? Can't wait to get back to that kind of a, like a theater or a, or a city. Uh, not a specific one. I don't think I'm in mean, some particular gigs that, mm -hmm. are that are cool to do. Um, there's a place called the MIM, the musical instrument museum in Phoenix, which is, one of my favorite little theaters. It's an extraordinary place, the whole museum. And they've got just this beautiful few hundred seat theater with amazing sound and lights and a nine foot Steinway and all this cool stuff. It's, wow. um, but you know, that's just picking one at random out of my recollections. But, uh, I, but in terms of cities, you know, playing New York is always special and a little extra, a little bit scary. And yeah. you know, <laughs> the audiences are a little bit more proven. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. So uh, that's exciting, and then playing home in LA is always fun. You know, so they're they're all yeah. they're all different, both yeah, both physically and and audiencely. How much control does a producer have over like um, 
a performance like how somebody sings like do you, do you ever you know it varies enormously you know it depends on the artist and what how much input okay. they want how much input they accept and <laughs> it also changes in the course of an artist's career at the beginning oh. they're they're much more likely to 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 want suggestions at mm. the end you know as a producer you're lucky if you're still employed you know they probably think they can do it all by themselves yeah and sometimes they can sometimes right. they can't but but my point being the power balance obviously yeah. Yeah. Beatles, you know when they were first signed george martin was a god mm-hmm. by by the time you know by the end he was a friend helping them out you know right 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 yeah. do you find it like uh is there a huge difference between stylists and vocalists in terms of when you're producing them you know what i mean like like uh like a bob dylan would be like more of a stylist he's got a particular thing and then you've got the power ballad people who you know can yeah. sing anything do you, do you yeah, find one in particular different than I've the other? Ne- i've been lucky i've generally only produced people who can sing in other words i've never, <laughs> been, I've never produced bob dylan <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just thinking. I was like, "Oh, a stylist? That'd be interesting." Yeah, that's that's uh, true. <laughs> stylist, is, stylist is polite, but it makes it sound a bit like a hairdresser. But, <laughs> but, I didn't. I didn't know what else to call it. So. No, exactly, exactly. No, I mean, if you think about it, miraculously, which James, Linda, Diana, as you say, mm-hmm. and all those people, they really can sing. So right. So it, yes, it, it's. May one may help them elicit and choose the best performance. Right. I mean, the album I'm starting now that um, that we're in the doing pre-production now. Uh, I'm doing a record with Susanna Hoffs, who, who's singing I've always loved with the Bangles, and and uh, yes, and her voice is extraordinary. And she's singing better than ever. So we started on some work on that, and again, um, <laughs> it's it's so easy because she she's a fantastically good singer. Yeah, she is. I, I, she's been. I've been following her. That sounds creepy. I've been following her on Instagram. <laughs> it's always a weird when you're saying yeah, talking about yeah. social media. But uh, she's been posting, you know, um, videos during the pandemic and stuff, kind of like everybody else does. And her voice yeah. still sounds amazing. Well, we did this thing for for CNN, you know, for their um, yes, uh, what do you call it, Fourth of July thing. Mm-hmm. We did new versions, new arrangements, reimaginings of of Manic Monday and uh, Eternal Flame. Mm. And that was really fun. And she did that live. And if you listen to it, the singing is yeah, And I, I watched that. It was it was awesome. Um, and uh, what about like the inflection of a singer on certain words and stuff? Because I always wonder when you're listening to an album, you know, is it more like they're singing in the moment and you're like, oh, I'd never heard it quite like, you know, quite like that before. Let's leave it in. Or you're like, we got to go back. I don't think they... Both again, unfortunately, all those things have happened, you know, so <laughs> it, it, at one time or another. So yeah. sometimes there'll be a particular moment the singer themselves will do something differently. Mm-hmm. Someone like Diana actually sings it different every time. Um, right. And you kind of go, Ooh, that's a new cool way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes uh, in Linda's case, she'll actually ask for input on, you know, which, what do you think is best to do it this way or this way? Um, and consciously choose one or the other. So yeah. it, it varies very much from, from singer to singer. That's, that's, I, I'm always sorry. It, like, it, you know, like everything between producer and artist, it's always a consultation. It's a discussion. Unless well, you're, you know, the Phil Spector or that school of production where you, everyone is essentially a session musician, whether even if they're the named artist and you yeah. tell them how to do it and the record is your record. Well, um, using great singers but but he generally as i understand it would 
would be quite rigorous about this is how I want to do it. Mm -hmm. I've never been that kind of producer. I've always been the let's sit down and figure out how we can do this and make the song. Yeah. And then in the rest of my job, as I see it, is framing that vocal, you know, in the best possible way to make it sound as good as it can be. Um, which means putting the right things in there and leaving the right leaving the wrong things off, or even more importantly. Hmm. So you don't automatically clutter the track up. One of the things I like about a lot of the modern top 40 records is how spare they are. That they'll get like one little piano sound and fix it. So it's so interesting that you don't need anything else. Right. I love that. Have you ever thought about going back through something you'd produced and trying to do it in a different way? Have you ever looked back on it like, oh, what if we did it like this? Or Yes, but usually that's a mistake because if the record was successful, mm -hmm. people want to hear the one they heard back then. Yeah, true. They don't care. Artists always want to do that. They go, oh, we can do that one so much better than I did it back in the day. For mm -hmm. the greatest hits album, let's do a new version. Right. And everyone hears it and goes, ugh. You know, I don't <laughs> care. I don't care that it's nominally better in some respects. Right. But I want the one that I heard when I was making out in the back of the car or whatever. You know, I want the one that is that era. Yeah. You know, yeah, and I know I'm like that. If you buy sometimes you buy an album of greatest hits and you find out they're like remakes. So now Jeff Lynn, on the other hand, you know, has re redone all his hits mm -hmm. exactly. They they sound exactly like the originals. Yeah. Only better cleaner and they're great you know but when people think oh i can do a better arrangement or a better style of vocal or this that, and the other even if you think it's better we, we're not going to because we're in love with the one you did years ago mm -hmm. i it's so funny that you say that because just recently i bought myself a turntable and i, I have mm -hmm. records because i I used to when i go out on the road i would go to like antique stores or whatever and collect right. comedy albums and regular records i bought a donovan one recently and i'd seen it and it was whatever and uh i love the song catch the wind yeah and uh i'd had it on my phone for years or whatever and when i played it on the album same cover same cover on my phone completely different oh. and i was like what is this <laughs> Right. What have I done? And then exactly. the entire time I tried to spend figuring out whether I messed up and it's not the right out. Like I was like, where did this come from? I can't find like to this day, I don't know. Right. Right. Um, but it is interesting that like I I my brain kind of in <clears throat> instantly rejected the one that was probably correct <laughs> the way hey, they wanted. Yes, exactly. Yes. No, and they people redo it usually for, for purely materialistic reasons. Yeah. You know, because because if you redo it, once you, there's a period during which you cannot re-record your old songs, but once you once that period elapses, you can save a fortune by not having to pay the record label, not having to pay the rest of your band, right, and not having to pay the woman you were married to when you got the record. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great! And there's half right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you what, does the does the digital aspect of music today kind of bother you a little bit? No, I love it. Not no, no. Well, I mean, like in in terms of like how um, I guess you know for a while they certain um, I, I'm trying to think uh, apps or whatever were removing like uh, like Michael Jackson. Let's say you know what I mean. Like they were like that that stuff's gone. You can't listen to it anymore. Like I still buy music because I'm afraid someone's going to either tamper with it you know, or, or remove it. Do you, do you kind of, do you kind of miss like having something be tangible or? Oh, oh, you mean, well, like these different miss, platforms that own the mute, you know what I mean? Like they technically yes. own, own the right. But you can still it. have access to it. I mean, you got access to it. I mean, access has never been better. Hmm. You can listen to pretty much anything you want, anywhere you want pretty much right. instantly, you know? Yeah. 
Does um, it hurt the artist, do you think, at all? Or or do you think it's a win, win kind of a different balance? I think it's a win-win generally, but you don't make as much money. You know, right. the music business has changed drastically, and it's very hard to make what used to be considered rock star amounts of money. Um, you know, I mean, if you if you're incredibly brilliant and incredibly huge, like Ed Sheeran or someone, you mm. do make you can still make a fortune. But generally, you know, the it's funny thing is that rock stars become, a, as you know, a phrase now. You know, yeah, uh, nothing. So, but the answer is now: if you're going to be a rock star, do not go into music. Become a tech guy. Invent an app. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Elon Musk is a rock star. Your average rock band leader is not. Yeah. Right, know? right. So, That's so, so true. It's, it's, it's all changed. But I think the fact that music is more important than ever, that people listen to more music than they ever did, partly because the access is so dramatically improved, hmm. you know, that you, most, I mean, we're, we're just about at that point where if you say, I feel like hearing some music, how about so-and-so, you know, how about Catch the Wind? Luckily, I wasn't talking into anything relevant or the music would already be pouring out because if I'd had Siri or, or Alexa or any of those things working, it would yeah. already, we'd already be listening to Catch the Wind. <laughs> and the point is, you don't even have to know where it's coming from. I right. wouldn't know if it's coming from you or you or me or my phone or my television or what the hell. But, you know, the good thing is you can listen to me. She shall have music wherever she goes. And that's important. That that finally is, is almost achieved. And that's a very good thing. That's a good point. Yeah. Now, is anyone getting paid for that music? The answer is probably yes, but minimally. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and probably not the right people. And probably, <laughs> Well, that might be the right people. But, yeah. well, that's a separate thing. Right, right, right. Comes, you know, back in the old days, it never went to the right people. It always went to Morris, <laughs> Morris, Morris Levy or somebody, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, was there know. ever was there ever like a gig that you had gotten like where you were like I think I got stiffed I don't know what uh, happened back there oh but quite I, often yeah oh um, yeah back in the day you'd play gigs and not get paid and, oh my god or, you know I mean with uh, the in the American record business it was more common that you didn't get paid by the label either you know all all those wow. black R and B labels were famous for the right you know, eventually they'd buy you a Cadillac and say. And pat you on the head, you know. That was it. You know? Great. But, but people got ripped off mercilessly for their wow. songs and their recordings. You know, and, and not even just not even just Motown, even labels like Atlantic, you know, and all those uh, labels dealing with black music. The they if they could get away with not paying you, they probably would. Right. Back in the day, you know, because they'd all they'd grown up in a in a fairly freewheeling to put it mildly version mm -hmm. of the music business where you made as much as you could and gave people as little as you could get away with right i feel like that carried over pretty far in right like into the it 80s did but then gradually they'd all stop being bought up by big corporations yeah who, who actually were fairly honest you know um they'd if they screwed you they'd screw you honestly going you know you when we're, we're not you're not gonna get paid much but you're lucky to be on our label um wow yeah but but they did the the actual old, you know, when someone asked for royalties and you just hang them out of the window for a while and then <laughs> or whatever, you know, uh, uh, you know, all those things, which really did happen. Remember, I think it was one of the last ones, wasn't it? Vanilla Ice, who famously, yeah, with Suge Knight, yeah, and they hung it, yeah, Suge Knight, hang them out of the window, yep, yeah. <laughs> it's like you don't want to get paid, do you? No, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, that still exists, I'm sure, but 
I think generally the record business has become, you know, it became very big business and all the major labels now are owned by major corporations. So it's, it's, it's closer to being a, a, a straightforward business, I think, which is good and bad. You lose a lot of fantastically interesting characters, yeah. <laughs> but, but some of them are also evil, like Shug Knight. Was, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is. Uh, whenever I watch one of those like uh, documentaries on MTV and stuff like that, they always say, you know, uh, they always call them the chig- cigar chomping guys. Right. Would be like, you know, like they would give more people chances. They'd be like, yeah, whatever. Throw it out there. If it sells, it sells. If it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't. Right. And, I, and like today, they're like afraid to take those kind of chances. Yeah. And they do more surveys and, you know, yeah. uh, is it what people want and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, well, they've got them on. Uh, and that, that, which is sometimes correct, but it also tends to eliminate the really outside stuff, which which right. is what, how, what changes music, you know. Is there anybody that you're really fond of right now that you haven't gotten to work with yet that you'd like to? Uh, lots of people. Um, there's some new people that I'm as a woman called Holly Humberstone. I'm very keen on. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she's very good. Um, I love Brandy Clark, who I think oh, me too. Right she's you know, so Brandy Carlisle, I love too, but. But yeah, Brandy Clark's about, great though. Everyone knows about Brandy Carlisle, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. not everyone knows about Brandy Clark. Yeah, I think. Brandy Clark's great though. Yeah. Roger and Singer. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a huge Ed Sheeran fan, but so is everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, I uh, I love great singer songwriters, and I think he is unquestionably one of them. And also because he's a redhead, so we're in this we're in the same uh, <laughs> yeah you guys same overall that. category. <laughs> and he's short too. I heard. Yeah, I think, and and wears glasses. Yeah, yeah. There you go. True. He's in the club. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. What, what, I'm gonna go back just a little bit. What, what was it? Do you have any like uh, you know road stories from being on the road with Gordon or the Beatles or any of those guys? Like anything you know bizarre that happened to you over the years? Uh, yes. That you'd like to share? Yeah, oh, I'm sure there. Yeah. I'm sure there are, but I'd like to. You know. <laughs> no, I don't. I can't think of a specifically bizarre story. Um, I mean the. The weirdest part was the the, the the whole British invasion thing in America. You know, when first came to America, you know, we dreamt of coming to America. You know, we idolized America. We loved American music. We loved everything about America. You know, in Britain, people forget, you know, in, in the 50s, we're still a black and white bomb site rationing. The last rationing in Britain was removed in 1956. Wow. Um, so, you know, we, we came from another world. and shortages of everything as a kid growing up so america you looked across it was this land land of plenty these crazy cars with big fins on them and giant refrigerators filled with exotic foods anyway so we loved america and we loved the music so when we first got to new york it was a thrill and then of course to be chased around new york by screaming girls trying to tear your clothes off isn't the only way to travel i recommend (laughs) so i've it was because of the Beatles, you know, as I mm. say, they, so even they'd seen Hard Day's Night and they knew how they were supposed to react. So the screaming became a self-perpetuating phenomenon. And it was weird because if they'd catch up, catch up with you, they didn't know what to do. Nothing happened. It was, it was all about the chase, you know, yeah. all about running around like in the movie. And, 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 and they were, they were crazed, you know, they were kind of a little bit out of their minds. Um, I do remember one one time we were doing an outdoor show in and there were a couple of like truck beds I think that the stage was on it was all mm-hmm. rather primitive then facing one side of a stadium and 
So there was seats. And the police continuously, with the Beatles and even with us and all the other acts, would underestimate the power of these girls, how crazy they would get. So they'd go, oh, we can handle anything, you know. And what happened, all the girls came running down onto the grass of the baseball pitch or whatever you call it. And and they were running across to where we were on the stage. And suddenly cops were telling us, leave, leave, run, go, you know, go and get back in the cars. This is out of control. So we were running, jumped off the, and as I jumped off the truck bed that was the stage onto the grass, my glasses fell, fell off, which had become somewhat sort of iconic. They were my buddy Holly glasses, you know, the right, right. they fell off on the ground. I picked them up and ran over and eventually got in the car. I looked back and this girl had caught up to where my glasses had landed on the grass <laughs> and was pulling the grass up and eating it. What? And I went, God. that's cool. <laughs> wow. I was impressed. Yeah. And, and so I thought, oh, yeah, that's, you know, of course, it's magic grass, you know. No. <laughs> <laughs> it, has, it has been touched by greatness. But, yeah. <laughs> but I confess, I was deep down mystified. Um, wow. And, and I kind of went, that's some really freaky scientific, you know, psychological phenomenon at work here. And yeah. if they did that to me, imagine if it was John Lennon's glasses who'd fall on the grass. Oh They'd have God. had to go and get a backhoe and take <laughs> <laughs> out a whole chunk of. You know. I wonder if those people remember doing that. You know what I mean? You know, like, yeah, I, like, I've yeah, told the story that? before. I've, I've never had anyone, you know, immediately email me going, I was the girl who had the grass that your glasses fell on. <laughs> we're going to find her for you. And we're going right. to tell her I was very impressed and I hope she's recovered. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well i it, we it's i can't believe the the hours basically you know uh, oh yeah blown by Mind but um, i've got a couple more questions for you one of them I, I we've asked every guest this and i'd love uh uh i'd love to get to ask you this too okay. if you had the opportunity to go back in time and speak to your younger self and give yourself a piece of advice that would kind of help you out today do you know what it would be uh Actually, not really, because uh, I don't think so. Be because I've actually been very lucky. I mean, I think if I followed any kind of overall principle, it's to take every opportunity that's come my way. I've not hesitated, you mm -hmm. know. So I was a child actor because the opportunity came my way, and that's a whole other story. You know, then I took school seriously for a bit, but then when it was on, I was, I was at university when suddenly we got – offered a record deal, made a record, went to number one, you know, so I was in the middle of my second year of, as a philosophy student at London University. Wow. And I just, and I jumped at the opportunity to, to go to America, quit school and, you know, so I, I think I've always tended towards taking the slightly more radical, when I found James, you know, when I first heard James Taylor, I, con you know, I totally bet my career on his, moved to America, without hesitation. So I think overall, I've been quite lucky in the sense that I've gone, oh, look, I can do this, boom, and done it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think generally people regret the things they don't do more than the things they do. Wow. And and uh, so I, I don't, I, I think my advice from my younger self will be, maybe I did give myself this advice. Maybe some, some time <laughs> warp. Maybe <laughs> I went back and said to the young Peter Asher, look, anything that comes your way, grab it, do it. That seems to be the advice I have followed. That's beautiful. I love the multiverse theme you got going on there too. That's there nice. exactly, exactly. Exactly. Just found the wormhole. 
Yeah, exactly. He sent yeah. himself this clip and he's like, yes, yeah, really hairy dude from New Jersey. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> and so I reached the peak of my career, which is, of course, doing the show. <laughs> you know, I'm only going to cut out that clip, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite so. Exactly. Everywhere. Um, right. Well, listen, so I'm going to just let everybody know where you're going to be. You've got a lot of gigs uh, coming up. Please um, do, yeah. You're going to be at the Count Basie on September 17th. You're going to be at the Kirby Center in Wilkes Bar, PA on the 18th. Um, yep. You're also going to be at the Iron Horse Music Hall in Northampton, Massachusetts um, on the 19th. Um, oh my God, wait, go back on the 16th. Sorry, you're going to be in Westerly, uh, Rhode Island. I think that's the first one. Yeah. That's the first one. Yeah. Westerly, Rhode yeah. Island is the first one. Uh, they yeah. sent me this out of order. <laughs> I should, I should know them in my head. Sorry. And no, this, no, no, it's show, fine. this is my memoir show where I do it with a bunch of video clips and, oh, and a band. And so we do songs and stories and, and so on. Yes. And you'll be ending it on 920 in Boston. And at the City Winery in Boston, which is City a cool winery. place to play. Yeah. 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 That's going to be a blast. I, I wish I could go to that one too. I love Boston. Well, I look forward to seeing you at, at, at whatever gig you make it do. Yeah, thank you, dude. I, I can't wait. Thank you so, so much for coming on, for doing this. It was an pl absolute pleasure to talk to you, really. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dystopia Tonight.